Hello, and welcome to the Middle East Forum's webinar series. I'm Greg Roman, and I will be moderating today's session. We are pleased to have Mr. Adi Schwartz. And joining us to discuss his new book, co-authored by former member of Israeli Knesset, Einad Vilf, The War of Return, How Western Indulgence of the Palestinian Dream Has Obstructed the Path to Peace, a project financed in part by the Middle East Forum. Mr. Schwartz will speak for roughly five to 10 minutes, then open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box below your screen. We will do our best to get to all questions, but we have many participants in today's webinar, so I apologize in advance if we're not able to get to everyone. You're more than welcome to email your questions, which we will forward to Mr. Schwartz at info at meforum.org. And with that, I will turn the discussion over to Adi. Hi, Greg. Hi, Adi. Hi, good evening. And um, it's both an honor and a pleasure to be your host in this webinar. Thank you for this opportunity. Um, so the first question is actually how and why uh, we got to writing this book. So um, both Einat and myself have uh, asked ourselves uh, in the last couple of years or decade or more, why is there no peace between Israelis and Palestinians? And for many years, it seemed that we have some kind of a formula. We have a formula uh, to achieve that peace. Uh, it was called uh, Land for Peace. And um, Israel was supposed to cede territory or some of the territory that it captured in the 1967 war. And the Palestinians were supposed to establish their state. Um, several proposals, several peace proposals were offered uh, doing exactly that one by Ehud Barak in 2000, another one by Ehud Olmert in 2008. In the middle, we had the Clinton parameters. And uh, according to media accounts, even the um, discussions that were held during the Obama presidency not so long ago. And the problem is that uh, the Palestinians did not say yes. Uh, supposedly, they received an offer exactly with what they wanted. They wanted, supposedly, to establish a state, a sovereign state uh, in the territories in the West Bank and Gaza, to split Jerusalem, to divide it. Uh, all those proposals were suggesting that effectively on 100% of the territory. And still, they did not say yes. So the question is, what do they want? If they don't want that famous Palestinian state, what is it exactly that the Palestinians want? And here I think uh, I came to the conclusion that there are perhaps different views of the conflict. Um, many Israelis, and certainly most people in the international community, see this conflict as an ethnic conflict, meaning that there are Jews and there are Arabs. Both of them are ethnic groups. Uh, they have some rights, perhaps not exclusive rights, but both of them have rights over the territory. And therefore, a reasonable solution could be dividing the land. But the Palestinian perspective is very different. From the Palestinian perspective, it is not a conflict between two ethnic groups with rights in the land, but a conflict between one group, and that is them, the Palestinians, which are the indigenous group with all the rights, exclusive rights over the entire land, and another group, the Jews, who are foreigners, colonialists, with no rights whatsoever. And therefore, when Palestinians call for justice, they mean 
that the Jews have no rights over the land. The Jews can only be a minority as they were for hundreds of years. So in Palestinians' eyes, this conflict is more like the conflict between India and England or between Algeria and France. And there is no reason, there is no possibility of achieving justice unless the French leave Algeria at all. So the only option, the only just option for an end of conflict or a resolution of this conflict is in fact the end of the Jewish state as a sovereign state. Jews cannot be sovereign in any part of the land. Now, when you understand this concept, you come to understand that perhaps the most um, obvious place where you see it, or this is the best expression, is the issue of the refugees. And this is the reason why both Einat and me decided to delve into it, to understand why are there still refugees from a war that ended 72 years ago? I mean, millions of refugees uh, in the 40s, there were other wars, there were wars in Asia, in Africa, in Europe, of course, and we still do not have refugees from the 40s. So how come only the Palestinians are refugees from that period? How come they were never resettled? And what is their position today? Is it a bargaining chip, as some people think, or is it genuine? And of course, our um, uh, conclusion is that it's a very serious uh, issue. So since I have a very limited time, I will just highlight a few of the most important points that we make in the book. And then, of course, I'm very happy to um, um, receive any questions that you have. So perhaps the most important thing to understand is that the refugee issue is a political issue. The reason why the refugee population has never been resettled is that the Palestinians do not want to solve this problem. For them, it is a symbol for the fact that the war against the state of Israel has not ended. Resettling the refugees Finishing this issue means that we do look to the future and we can live next to each other peacefully. And for now, this is the situation which the Palestinians are not yet. They do not believe that they can overcome what happened in the past. So the issue has been disguised as a legal issue, as a humanitarian issue, but it is not. At its core, it's a political issue. It's a synonym for the fact that they cannot accept a Jewish sovereignty over any part of the land. A second very important point to understand is that Palestinian refugees do not have a right of return, what they usually call, to the state of Israel. For 70 years, the Palestinians have uh, uh, said again and again that there is a right of return. They use every time this term, but in legal terms, this is not something that they possess. Now, this is important because when you come to negotiating table, negotiation table, there's a difference if something is a legal right that you can uh, go to the court, whether it's the Hague or whatever, or whether it's a political demand. And a political demand we can accept and we can, you know, we can reject. But in this case, refugees do not have a legal right to enter the state of Israel. In fact, if you look all the precedents, uh, there is no precedent of a sovereign state that was forced against its will to accept people into its territory. So there is no such a legal right. 
And um, the reason why we call this book, or why we deal extensively with the Western indulgence, is that, okay, so we understand the Arab position. We understand they, they do not want to resettle the refugees. But how come it managed to be perpetuated for so long? And this is the part of the West. And when I say West, I mainly mean the United States, European Union to some extent, the UK and other European states, which have indulged this dream of one day destroying Israel. That has been financially supported through a United Nations agency called UNRWA, and whose actually only aim today is to perpetuate this status. And for many years, uh, because of the Arab cloud, political cloud and the uh, issue of the oil and economic uh, pressure that they could exert on, on the West, um, it was easy for both the USA and Europe to decide that they're going to throw away more than a billion dollars each year because they did not want to cause uh, a rift with the Arab world. But this is the issue. The issue is, on the one hand, Arab position, and the one, on the other hand, the fact that the West uh, has indulged this dream and even financed it for many years. And the last point I want to make before opening it to questions is that um, the Palestinians envisage an agreement or how they see this issue of the right of return, even if an agreement would be signed of the two states, which does not seem very close, but I'm talking about the vision, they envision a situation in which each and every one of the more than 5.5 million registered refugees have the personal right to decide for himself or herself whether they want to settle in Israel. So there is no way that the PLO can forego that right. And you can imagine that the state of Israel would never be um, willing to give each and every one of those refugees, either living in Gaza or in Lebanon or wherever, the right to decide its fate. And this is the minimum demand. If you look at the PLO's documents and uh, mention that in the book, then you see that uh, they're adamant on this, that each and every one of the refugees has the personal right to decide whether or not he wants to return. And with that, I would be very glad to uh, answer some of your questions. Thank you, Adi. We have a question from Alexis Griller, where she asks, tangentially connected to your point about Arab recognition of Israel and the Palestinian issue. What about the Arab states' recent nadir in relations with Israel? Will they pressure the Palestinians to accept peace? Would they move to accept any Palestinians in their own country? So yes, thank you. This is a very important question because we must look at the conflict in a wider lens. And in fact, uh, I think sometimes that if the conflict had been only between Israelis and Palestinians, it would be over back in April 1948. Because the war in 1948, uh, the Jewish forces, even before uh, the state of Israel was established, was kind of finished during one month. But then, of course, Arab armies invaded and the entire conflict became very different. It became the Arab-Israeli conflict, et cetera, et cetera, and we know where it went. Yes, I definitely think that recent events have changed the map. First and foremost, you cannot really talk about an Arab world. Certainly in the United States, and if you look also at uh, economic development, such as the uh, importance of oil, you see today that the American economy is much less dependent on Arab oil. 
again, you do not really have an Arab world. Remember in the 50s and the 60s, you had Nasser, some very strong leaders who were pretending to talk in the name of the Arab world and said to the US, listen, if you're going to uh, go against us, then there will be some outcomes. Nowadays, nobody in the Arab world can play that role. So the Arab world is much weaker. And yes, I think that because of that, because they are much more dependent on, on the West, um, I think that many people, perhaps in Saudi Arabia, perhaps in the Gulf states, are willing to press the Palestinians more and more and tell them, listen, guys, this is it. This is what you're going to get. And um, stop with this fantasy of destroying the state of Israel. I think that at the right moment, with the right, you know, atmosphere, etc., I think even, um, uh, you know, absorbing the refugees could be a, a, a realist scenario. So pivoting to the refugees and their alleged right of return, how much is it connected to the Islamic precept to never forfeit land once controlled by Muslims? The idea of, I believe it's called Dar al-Harb and Dar al-Islam. Yes, it definitely is connected. It's both a religious thing, ethnic, national, whatever you want to see it. But the notion that the Jews can have a piece of land amidst what has been called an Arab and a Muslim world is an anathema. There is no way, and, and for that matter, it's not important how large the Jewish state would be. And again, this is what explains uh, the rejection of all the partition plans, 37, 47, Camp David, Abu Mazen, Arafat, this is the explanation. They cannot live with a sovereign Jewish state, with Jews being, uh, you know, as the Israeli Declaration of Independence says, uh, masters of their faith, uh, just like any other nation. Inside a Muslim psyche, Jews are a minority. They are tolerated, okay? It means that they can, you know, keep kosher food and uh, bury their dead according to the rules. But uh, leading armies, being prime ministers, deciding the fate and, you know, what we call affaire d'etat, state matters, no, not at all. So this is certainly something which goes very back theologically, religiously, certainly. There was an audit of Palestinian refugee, refugee numbers by the U.S. State Department a few years ago, where they have now said that the amount of true refugees, according to American law, is somewhere between 20,000 and 100,000, depending on the way they count it. Is this going to do more for the US case at the United Nations or for the Israeli case at the United Nations that the number defined by UNRWA, some five or six million, is not the true number, but is actually closer in five digits? And if so, how will that affect American policymaking? So yes, the, the issue of the Palestinian refugees, their number is, is uh, quite simple. Um, UNRWA has their own definition, and in fact, as you just mentioned, if we would apply international standards between 90, 95, perhaps 98 percent, it depends again exactly how you define it, would not have been considered refugees. Just a very small example, 40 percent of the refugees, of the refugees, reside in Jordan. Jordan granted citizenship to all Palestinian refugees back in 1950. So from that moment on, all Palestinian refugees residing in uh, Jordan have citizenship. Now, normally, everywhere else, uh, uh, refugee status stops when you receive a new citizenship. Palestinians are the only group that keep having 
their uh, refugee status and a Jordanian citizenship. And this is 40%. And again, there are issues of descendants and uh, people who are um, inside the West Bank. So how can they be refugees out of Palestine? So the issue of the numbers is, is inflated very much. Uh, regarding the, the uh, future of UNRWA, I actually think that it is even easier than going through the General Assembly. The General Assembly is doomed, as many people understand, because you know, the Organization of Islamic Countries have 57 countries, members. It's, it's, a, it's a dead cause. It's a dead end going through the United Nations General Assembly. But UNRWA has a, um, a governing board, and there, only the donor countries, because you have to remember that UNRWA needs money. And they don't have budget out of the United Nations budget, but annually they have to go and ask for money from the United States, etc. Now the US stopped the funding of UNRWA, which was a very good move forward. And I think that if diplomatically we could pressure more countries in Europe, and we have some candidates, uh, the Netherlands, Switzerland, all of these countries have mentioned that they are not very happy. I think that an easier path could be through the advisory board, which is something like 10, 15 countries, all of them Western, because Arab countries don't uh, finance UNRWA. So whether it's a definitional or a funding issue, we've seen that there have been other Arab nations which have filled the gaps associated with the loss of American or Western support for UNRWA. For instance, Qatar just committed to a $1 billion fund for Gaza and $150 million for an UNRWA operating fund. So it might be money that's helping out, but we have a question here which relates to the leadership issue. If the US has stopped supporting UNRWA, are there other Western countries besides those that you've mentioned that have made policy decisions rather than just funding decisions on considering what is actually a Palestine refugee? No, so this is a very important issue because European countries play this some kind of a naive role of saying, well, listen, the refugee issue is an end of conflict, is a core issue, and we leave it to you to decide what's going to be the fate of the refugees. So they say that they do not want to stop the funding, and this is something that, uh, you know, Israelis and Arabs uh, should decide. This is a disingenuous uh, position because, first of all, the number of the refugees grows by the day. So UNRWA makes it that uh, if uh, once we had 1 million and 3 million, 5 million, next year we'll have 6 and 7 million. So it's not a neutral thing to do. And another thing in my view is that the European Union is very clear regarding, for example, the issue of the settlement. They don't say, okay, the borders are, you know, something for a final status discussions and uh, we let you continue building settlements. By the way, they should have finance settlements. If they finance an exponential growth in the number of refugees to the point that we will never have any solution, they, why don't they support an exponential expansion of, uh, of the settlement? So they have a very one-sided position. And I suspect also that in the recent um, climate, you know, political climate, they uh, took the role of being anti-Trump. So if Trump says, we're going to stop UNRWA, which is a very rational move, makes sense. It's very, you know, aligned with uh, American and by the way, Western policies, European policies. Uh, but if Trump says yes, they will say no. So at this point, in this moment in time, we're somehow stuck because uh, I think it goes between, you know, the relationship between the EU and America. But hopefully, 
perhaps with diplomatic work, more diplomatic work, we can make a change of that. And for our last question, we have here that uh, Israel's Koga organization has been a proponent of UNRWA since the late 1970s. What are the Israelis doing or the Israeli government doing to further the Palestine refugee myth? Okay, so this is also a very interesting and extremely important issue. And um, unfortunately, I think that the Israeli establishment, the Israeli Ministry of Defense, the Israeli IDF has a very uh, narrow and if you want tactical position of maintaining the quiet. Uh, for them, the fact that UNRWA giving uh, health services and giving uh, education services is good enough to maintain or keep some kind of quiet. Now, what we say, both Einat and me, that this is how uh, you know, a general looks at the battle. But what we need is leadership. We need somebody to look 10 years or 20 years in the future because UNRWA is making the next, future, the next generation of, of terrorists, the next generation that is being taught to never recognize Israel. I mean, Einat and me, we do not think that we can one day, I mean, in one day, change the Palestinian mind. We're not naive, but we think that if the West starts sending a clear message that they are not supporting the fantasy, the Palestinian fantasy of destroying Israel, then slowly, slowly, months, years, perhaps even decades, but somehow this notion of financing such a dream, this must stop. Certainly, I think the Israeli establishment has to do much more about sending this clear message to the Europeans and the Americans. And for now, they're certainly not doing enough. Adi Schwartz, thank you very much. And thank for you. more on your and Inat Vilf's book, where can we purchase it? So uh, all American stores, you can buy a physical copy. Of course, now you can just uh, order it back home. And there's electronic... Uh, uh, copy Kindle, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, all the major stores, uh, you can find it. And we'll include a link to the book on the Middle East Forum summary of this Thank webinar. You very much. Thank you for joining us today. Unfortunately, we've come to a close of our event. Please join us this Wednesday with Ashley Perry and the Israel Insider at 3 p.m. Eastern Time. On Friday, we also have Joseph Humeyer joining us to discuss from the Middle East to Venezuela, from crisis to conflict. Thank you again for joining us and have a wonderful day.